following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. If you have your Bibles, would you turn them to First Chronicles and the 16th chapter? We're going to continue on in our reading of the Old Testament. In this chapter, remember, we're following a little bit the journey of the Ark of the Covenant as it was moved uh, a couple in a couple of steps back to uh, its place in the tabernacle, but in Jerusalem now under the leadership of King David. And they had uh, one false start, which led to the... Uh, uh, yes, let me pause and just uh, ask uh, the young people if they are ready to go to their Truth Trackers Club. You may head up there for that. Sorry, I forgot about that. First Chronicles chapter 16, the ark uh, had begun to be moved, but they were doing it in the wrong way, and so uh, God was displeased with that. One man lost his life in a, as a result of uh, improperly touching the ark of the covenant, and then they let it rest for a while, and then they began to move it again in chapter 15. Chapter 16 now is where we are. And it says, So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And then some of those people who were so assigned, Asaph the chief, next to him Zechariah, then Jehiel, Shemaramot, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, and Obed-Edom, Jehiel with stringed instruments and harps, but Asaph made music with cymbals. Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, regularly blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. I want you to pause and just think for a second. He delivered it to the hand of Asaph to thank the Lord. You know, David was the sweet psalmist of Israel, and uh, others wrote psalms as well. Asaph himself did. But he didn't just, you know, quick probably jot this down in the back of uh, an envelope. Uh, he had thought about this. The ark is coming. We're going to praise the Lord, and I'm going to write a song in order to do that. And so uh, he did. He's a very skilled uh, man in music, and, uh, and now with the pen and the word, we see it as well. Verse 8, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, sing to Him, sing psalms to Him, talk of all His wondrous works, glory in His holy name, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength, seek His face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. 
when you were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. There's kind of a defining verse there. When we talk about gods, lowercase g, they're just idols. They're not true gods. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give the Lord, O families of the peoples, give the Lord glory and strength. Give the Lord glory, sorry, the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You know that, don't you? The Lord reigns over all the nations of the world, every one. None is accepted. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And say, Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So he left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark regularly as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, and Hosea to be gatekeepers, and Zadok, the priest, and his brethren, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. And with them, Hermon and Jeduthun, and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name, to give thanks to the Lord, because his mercy endures forever." And with them, Heman and Jeduthun, to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Jeduthun were gatekeepers. Then all the people departed, every man to his house, and David returned to bless his house. First Chronicles and chapter 16, a great time of rejoicing. If only they would have maintained that footing or that stance for the remainder of their history for the thousand years after David until Messiah came, uh, that would have been a wonderful thing, but they did not. And uh, we know from other portions in the Chronicles about all of that. Okay, take a breath. Now we move on to Matthew chapter 11. If you would turn there this evening, I want to share a little bit as we uh, just prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord tonight. Matthew chapter 11. We've nearly finished the chapter now in our 
expositional series on the book. And we saw in earlier in the chapter that uh, John the Baptist had been imprisoned. Uh, he was in great depression, wondering why the Lord was not uh, taking the kingdom and establishing it over the nation of Israel. Uh, and the Lord sent back to him and gave him an encouraging message. Uh, that's uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through uh, 19. And then the Lord pronounced judgment on some cities that refused to repent and said, uh, hypothetically, if, if I had done the works that I'm doing among you, amongst the wicked cities of the past, like Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, but you did not, and therefore the judgment that you will receive is worse than the judgment that even they will receive. And of course, they were uh, some Gentile and uh, pagan and idolatrous uh, cities, and uh, the Jewish person would say, how, how could that be, that, that we'll get a worse judgment than them? Well, that's what the Lord Jesus said. And uh, part of the reason for that is because they had greater light to whom much is given. Isn't it true that much is required? We've said that many times here from the pulpit, Luke 12, 48. Uh, and it's, it is true. If you have been given much, you are responsible for much. If you've been given little, you're responsible for little in God's economy. And they had been given great, the great light of uh, the revelation of the Old Testament prophets, the, the temple, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the service of God, all of this that we read about in First Chronicles 16, the praise regularly, the sacrifices, and all of that. And, uh, and then, beyond that, they were given the Lord Jesus Christ in their midst, and they refused to repent and turn away from their sin. And so that was going to be their undoing. So we saw that, and then we came to verse 25 of chapter 11. By this time, you have to remember, if you're, if you're not current on this series, that the Lord has come onto the scene after the birth narrative in chapters 1 and 2, the uh, baptism in, in 3, the temptation uh, by Satan in chapter 4, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and then he went throughout all Israel, preaching in their cities, teaching in their synagogues, uh, working miracles, doing all kinds of authenticating signs to tell the nation of Israel, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the one that you have been looking for, the coming one, all these years. I'm the prophet, the priest, the coming king, and here I am. And I'll do some miracles here like raising some dead people, healing some lepers, causing the blind to see, the mute to speak, the lame to leap, and so on. And yet still they didn't believe and even said, well, he's doing that by the power of the devil, casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And that will come to a, a real sharp point in chapter 12, which we'll come to next, but not tonight. So you that's the background of this in general. Jesus is offering them the kingdom. He's calling them to repent. And by the way, even though they did not in large measure, the kingdom is still going to come. And the only way you can be a citizen of the heavenly kingdom is if you turn away from your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you believe in Christ, and I'm going to explain that response to the Lord using different words tonight, a different approach, a different explanation, one used by our Lord himself. If maybe those words haven't quite made sense to you or sunk in, maybe these will that we share tonight. And, and I'll come to them in, 
especially in verses 28 through 30. When we, when we were here last time, we looked at 25 to 27, however, and I'll just read those quickly, uh, or part of them. The Lord is praying to the Father, that is, the Lord Jesus is praying to His Father, and He thanks Him. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes or to infants, to children. And what he's saying is, you know, all the stuff that I've been talking about, turning away from sin, believing in the Messiah, trusting in God, following God, those things are evidently hidden from what he calls the wise and the prudent. You know, the people, let's say, in the upper echelons of society who say, I don't need God, you know, forget him. I've got my own thing going. I'm okay. Uh, I'm self-sufficient. I'm smarter than all of that. In fact, I maybe even think that God doesn't exist. So what do I need all of that for? Those are the wise and prudent in air quotes. That's not really wise and prudent, but it is what they think it is. And so the Lord said, these truths are hidden from them. Uh, how could I illustrate it? Do you, have you ever had the experience, I don't know which side of the coin you're on on this, but there's a, a, imagine a very astute academic person and then a very wise uh, kind of hands-on person. And they're together and they're facing some problem that the hands-on person, you know, easily knows and understands. You know, some machinery is broken or something is wrong with the electrical switch or something like that. And the, the, the smart person, the, I call him the smart person, the academic, the astute, you know, person has no clue about how to fix that thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're like book smart, but not like practically smart. And this person whom, you know, person A here, the, the, the academic is kind of looks down on them. They're kind of like, you know, they have grease under their fingernails and a blue collar type. And, you know, what do they know? Well, they know a lot. And, you know, these people end up taking their cars to people like that. And they end up taking all their, you know, kind of plumbing and electrical issues and all this to them so that they can fix it. This kind of person knows these things. Those kind of matters are hidden from his sight, but the blue-collar guy just understands them intuitively, and he knows how to fix things or or do this, whatever this, this thing is. And this is kind of an illustration of what we're talking about here. The Lord is saying, you know, there's people that, you know, think they really know a lot. And then there are people that are very simple, practical, and I'm talking not now in, in terms of you know mechanical things or hands-on things or academic things. I'm talking about spiritual things. You know, the, the very highfalutin types up here are too smart for Christianity. You know, that's for dummies. The Christian things that you know, believing in God, that's for wimps just a, a crutch to help them get along in life and, and you know, suffer through, and uh, at least they have some kind of a, a um, you know, a balm for their hurts while they go through life. That's nice for them. They're there now. From them is hidden the truth of the gospel, but to these folks here who are despised, 
who are dependent upon God, who recognize their need and their sin, and who have come to, to see that they are sinners and that they need divine grace, they need salvation, they need forgiveness, the things of God are open to them. They can understand them. God opens them up to their hearts and to their minds. And, and how is this? Verse 26 says, Even so, it is this way, Father, he prays, Jesus does, for it seemed good in your sight. It is a delight to God that the gospel is a message of simple faith in a crucified Christ that provides salvation from sin, which is totally opposite of what the uh, academic or the uh, wealthy and powerful people would accept. You know, here's a story, the history of a man named Jesus who comes to the earth and dies for sinners as a common criminal on a Roman cross. Thus, we picture behind me the cross. People look at that and they say, that's crazy. The Jews stumble at it, and the Greeks, the wise Greeks, they think it's foolishness. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. We look at that message and we say, no, that's not crazy. It's not foolishness. It's not a stumbling block. It is a precious truth, the truth that saves our souls, that Christ did this. And then Jesus says this in verse 27, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And so you're saying, man, this is a hopeless situation. I want to know God. I want to know God the Father. But Jesus says, nobody knows him except me, the Son, Jesus. But then he says this, no one knows, uh, uh, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So if Jesus wants to show you the Father, wants to help you to understand who God the Father is, he does that in accordance with his will. Now, that itself may cause you to think, man, that's pretty exclusive. I mean, you mean I can't know God any other way? I can't know God through some you know, of the other world religions? Um, I can't know God on my own? And the answer to those questions is no, you cannot. There are no other world religions that lead to God the Father. There are no other ways that you can contrive uh, or invent by which you yourself can get to know God the Father. If the Son has not revealed the Father to you, you're not finding Him. And you say, well, what if I want to find Him? Well, that, that desire, if it's genuine and true, that desire has been put in your heart by God, and Christ will reveal the Father to you if it's a genuine desire, comes from God. But you say, man, that's limited. In fact, it is because John chapter 14 and verse 6 says, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't go to God the Father through any other means except through Jesus the Christ. And so you, at the end of that verse, you might be thinking, man, Christianity is pretty exclusive. There's only one way. And only if the Son wills to reveal the Father to you. Well, the Lord counterbalances that exclusive thought with this further additional 
idea in verse 28. And the idea is expressed in these words, which express an invitation to come to him to be saved, to be born again. And it's this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come and I will give you rest. In the context, this has to be related to the prior verse. And it seems to me what the Lord is saying is that although this way of salvation is exclusive and only through me can you know the Father, I invite anyone who wants to, to come to me and I will show him the Father. You see that? Anyone who comes to Jesus genuinely will not be cast out. Now, how does that work with God's sovereignty and all of that? Forget that question for now, okay? Put it out of your mind. I, I can deal with all of that another time. But he says, come. He invites Yea, he commands you to come to him to get to know the Father. And so the way is not as as exclusive as it initially seems. It is still that way, only through the Son. But anyone who comes to the Son can find the Father. Who are the kind of people that might want to do this? Well, look at verse 28. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Anybody here labor, laboring, and heavy laden, burdened, downcast, in despair, dispirited, disheartened, anybody at all? And I'm talking about a general kind of disheartening, but I think there's something even more specific here that we can grasp from this. We're talking about spiritual and emotional toil, loaded down with cares and anxieties, this could refer to the general cares of life, the general difficulties, the, the health diagnoses that you don't like, uh, the, uh, the, the financial problems, the, the marital if difficulties, the problems with children and grandchildren and, and, and all kinds of problems in your church, whatever. It could be general like that, but I think there's something even more specific. I think that he's talking to his Jewish brothers there and he's talking to them about the toil of trying to be saved by keeping the law. He hammers the Pharisees later on in Matthew chapter 23, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you load men down with burdens that you will not lift with your own finger. You know, you demand that they keep the law of Moses and all of the other things that you've added to it in order to seem or think that they would be righteous. If you're under that kind of load, come to Jesus. Come to the Lord. You don't have to come to any other intermediary. You don't have to go to any Pharisee, no scribe, no priest, no church, no anything. You come to the Father through the Son. That is it. So he's inviting you to come if you labor and are heavy laden. Now, we all have to bear our own burdens in a different 
sense. That is, we, we pay our own bills. We do our own work. We carry on our own responsibilities. We don't ask a brother or sister or somebody to help us do the things that we should be doing for ourselves if we can do them. This kind of burden, however, is not that kind. This is the kind of burden which is crushing, which is unable to be borne by an individual. When you, when you say, for instance, you must keep the law in order to be saved. That's what the Jewish people are doing in Acts 15. And Peter and James and, and Paul and the others wisely conclude, we cannot put the burden of the law upon men's shoulders a burden which, in the terms of later on in this section, a yoke which we could not bear ourselves. We cannot put that burden upon people. These people need a help to carry the burden, not an additional burden. And so the Lord says, not only come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. But he says this, parallel idea, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The yoke. The Pharisees would say to take the yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the Torah upon yourself. I don't want to take the yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the law. It became like a symbol or a a positive thing, like you willingly take the yoke of the Torah and you're going to live that way and you're going to be like, oh, say the rich young ruler, you know, when he asks what thing must I do to, you know, inherit eternal life. And the Lord Jesus said, well, you keep the commandments. Oh, I've done all that. Oh, you've done all that. Yes, right. Yeah. But he thought he did. But he was under that yoke of keeping the Torah, the law, uh, what, what is a yoke, by the way? Um, there are two different kinds of yokes. One is the kind of yoke you think of when you uh, put two animals next to each other, like two oxen, in a yoke, and it helps them to pull a heavy load along evenly, and you don't yoke an oxen with a cow or an oxen with a donkey or something because they pull unevenly and everything gets, you know, cranked out of adjustment and doesn't work right. Um, that's one kind of yoke. There's another kind of yoke, though, that you might have seen. Um, it's not a yoke that, oh, and by the way, let me say this. That kind of yoke is the picture in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, when uh, Paul tells the Corinthians to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's like the oxen and the donkey example. You have a Christian and a non-Christian, and they get into a close business relationship, or uh, a Christian boy uh, sees a nice non-Christian girl and wants to get married to her, and you're, you're always going to be in, a, in an uneven situation, and it's not going to work. Don't go down that road. Christians get married to other Christians, and things are have a much better opportunity to work out. But then uh, Paul also talked about... Um, the yoke in Philippians, I think it's in chapter 4, when he talks about the yoke fellow, you know, you true yoke fellows, those are that, are that are working with us in the gospel, help these women who are having some issue in the church. I'm not sure all what that was about, but um, that's the idea of a, a yoke that ties two together. But there's another kind of yoke, and I think this is the kind of yoke that the Lord Jesus is talking about, and it is the yoke that 
is for one person and helps them carry a heavy load. You imagine um, carrying two buckets of water, but instead of actually carrying them, imagine a yoke configuration that goes on your shoulders and has two uh, ropes or something that hold these buckets so that you can walk along and you're carrying the load on top of your shoulders. I'm going to ask a man who's training for the military, what's the best way to carry a heavy load? Out here like this or up here like this? It's up on your back. You want it somehow like centered over your center of gravity, right? So the weight is, is being borne by your skeletal frame and it's not like cranking you back like this or forward like this and ruining your back, which I've done a number of times uh, injuring myself. Uh, so I know you're not supposed to carry heavy loads out like this. Can you imagine the torques that, that, just calculate that, some of you physicists out there, what that does to the, to the, the axis here in your center of your body, it's crazy. Carry that stuff close. But the yoke is designed to help you carry the loads of life and make them easier. The Lord Jesus offers a yoke which is far easier than the yoke of the law, than the yoke of legalism, than the burden of all of that. He says, take mine and I will assist you and I will help you and strengthen you. Normally, the, the idea of a yoke is, is kind of negative, you know, like uh, the yoke of bondage, the yoke of the Romans ruling over us. We want to throw that off. But here, the yoke is not a bad thing. It's a light thing. It's far lighter than, than the alternatives that were offered by the Pharisees and so on. And so the Jesus yoke is light, while the Pharisee yoke was heavy. The yoke refers to learning here. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this rest does not loosen the righteous standards of God, but actually helps us to fulfill them. Helps us to fulfill them. And it's not that the Lord takes away the yoke. He doesn't say, look, I'll take the yoke right away from you. He says, no, take mine. Take mine. This is a yoke which has some kind of spiritual battery power in it, like one of those electric bikes that helps you get up the hill when it's so difficult on your own pedaling, you know, especially when you don't know how to shift the gears. You see people do that. They really work, and I'm like, hey, just flip that gear lever, and it'll help you off an awful lot. You know, people that are trying to get to heaven on their own power, under the yoke of the law, they're finding it a very difficult ride up that hill. They're never going to make it because nobody can make it. The only people that can make it are those that cast that yoke aside, take the yoke of Jesus on them, and answer his call when he says, Come to me, you who are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest is kind of like the Sabbath rest of the people of God from the book of Hebrews, that Sabbath rest that we find, that we realize, wow, I, I don't have to work to get to heaven. I can rest in Jesus and trust in his finished and complete work. After all, the yoke giver is meek and lowly. Although he's a king, he is the humblest king that you'll ever meet. Look at uh, Jeremiah 6.16, just in closing here, and we've got to get to the table elements. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. 
Thus says the Lord, Stand in the way and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Thus indicating that when the Lord calls, when the Lord offers a way of rest, when He offers an easy yoke, a light burden, we can choose. We will either come or we can say, I'm not coming. My friends, the only wise and safe course of action is for you to come. Anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus truly, you're invited to come to Him now in your heart. Say, Lord, I have sinned against Thee, against heaven, against others too, but primarily against You, and I confess that sin. And I ask that You would forgive me through Jesus Christ. I believe that You sent Him to die for sinners such as myself, and that He rose again from the dead, promised that if I believe in Him, He would wash me from my sin and allow me to become a citizen of the future kingdom of heaven so that I can expect to go to heaven for sure and, and I can be loosed from the bondage of sin and of trying to work my way to heaven, wear that light yoke for the rest of my days. That's the invitation here. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Don't learn from the false religions of the world. Don't learn from those that teach you you have to do good works in order to earn God's favor. Instead, learn from me. Learn that I have taken your, your sins from you and put them upon myself and died in your place. That's what he says in long form. He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You may come to him today and if you have right now, or if you have in time past, and you're walking rightly with God and in fellowship with this assembly of believers, we invite you to partake of the Lord's table tonight. Now, the table's not totally open. It's not like we just say, oh, whatever, you know, anybody comes that wants to, and, you know, don't worry about if you're saved or not saved or if you're walking in sin or whatever. Look, if you're, if you're living in sin, stay away from this table. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're examining yourself and you're saying, hey, I, I believe in the gospel, <clears throat> I know that I'm a sinner and that he saved me and that he wants me to walk holy and, and you're thinking of you know, those sorts of things, you're thinking on the sacrifice of Christ, you're well qualified spiritually to come to the table because of what Christ has done. And I invite you to do that tonight. Let me pray and close this, and as I do, I'll invite those brothers that are going to help us by serving the table elements to come forward this evening. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this great invitation of our Lord Jesus to come, to take his yoke upon ourselves. And Lord, those of us that have done that certainly have found that he is right, that his yoke is easy as burden is light, that we've found rest for our souls. And for that, we give you thanks. I pray that others tonight have found that as well, whether here or online, and that they have understood 
the things of God as revealed to them through the word of Christ tonight. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.